Today we're very uh, pleased and honored to be to welcome three uh, speakers for a Grant and Brown's tag team session on updates in hospital medicine. We asked three of our uh, uh, hospitalist clinician educators to come up with topics that they felt were very important and relevant to hospital medicine at this time. And they've compiled an excellent uh, presentation that they're going to uh, deliver in sequence. I'm going to give a brief introduction to our speakers and I'll uh, turn it over to Dr. Taylor. Uh, Dr. Taylor graduated from OHSU and prior to joining Providence Portland as a hospitalist, worked among many other uh, careers, uh, paths as a hospitalist for 11 years at OHSU, where she was medical director of the preoperative medicine clinic. An extensive work in perioperative perioperative medicine, including contributing a chapter to a newly re released book by the ACP entitled Decision-Making in Perioperative Medicine, Clinical Pearls, and she'll be talking about frailty in the perioperative time. We also have Dr. Ben Pedroja, former chief resident here at Prof Portland. He joined the hospitalist group at PPMC in 2018. He's a hospitalist clinician educator and heads up the residency point of care ultrasound and simulation curriculum. He's very active in quality improvement work and is passionate about addiction care for hospitalized patients. And so he'll be speaking today about safe op opioid prescribing in the hospital. And we are also going to hear from Dr. Alan Rinkin, who graduated from the University of Tennessee and has been uh, at PPMC since 2001 after graduating from residency at OHSU and is uh, one of our uh, esteemed resident educators, he's going to talk about hypertension in the hospital. So uh, our trio of speakers, Dr. Taylor, welcome you up to here to the podium. Okay. Oh. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Paul, for, for your kind introduction. I am deeply flattered and grateful to have been asked to be part of this distinguished uh, group of colleagues to present in our areas of special interest within the practice of medicine. And we have chosen one or two articles of some significance, which we will bring hopefully some new light into clinical practice, which uh, we also hope that you will find uh, interesting. To tie our presentations together, we will use a fictional character who will be going through different uh, phases of hospital care. Her name is Olive Oil. And Olive Oil is a delightful 87-year-old lady who presents with acute cholecystitis. She developed severe right upper quadrant pain 30 minutes after finishing a can of cream spinach. Her white count is 14. She has an obstructive pattern of liver enzyme elevation, and she's febrile to 102 degrees. Acute cholecystitis is suspected based on physical exam and confirmed with a right upper quadrant ultrasound. On review of system, it is noted that she has worsening functional ab abilities over the last three years. She now lives in an assisted living facility following a recent hospital admission for a fall with right hip fracture requiring intramedullary rod placement two months ago, after which she was discharged to a skilled facility for four weeks. She recently transitioned from the SNF to the assisted living facility where she requires assistance with her hygiene and she has limited ambulation mostly walking from her room to the central living area. Over the last several years, Olive has reported poor appetite and has experienced an unintentional 10-pound weight loss over the last 12 months. Her medical history is, uh, shows essential hypertension and osteoporosis. Surgical history um, is significant for the right intramedullary rod placement two months prior. She is widowed, formerly married to a sailor man, She's a former entertainer, and she has a brother uh, whose name is Castor Oil and who lives independently in Portland. She has a son named Sweet Pea. She's a lifelong non-smoker, minimal alcohol, 
and her current medications consist of Norvas, 10 milligrams per day, vitamin D, 2,000 units, and calcium. She has no allergies. So our surgical uh, colleagues are consultant. She's given a two-liter uh, IV fluid bolus for mild hypotension with a systolic blood pressure of 90 and lactate of 2.2 and a shot of Zosin 2.25 grams and is admitted to the hospital service. Hosp home medications are held. Hypotension responds to IV fluids and she stabilizes. Lactate is normalized. An initial four milligram IV morphine is given for pain as well as Tylenol, 1,000 milligrams given as an adjunct. Her family and her uh, sweet pea and her medical um, hour of attorney arrives late in the afternoon and uh, sweet pea understands the urgency of the procedure but would like to know more about her risk of serious complications. So at the core of everything we do to and for our patients, we help them to navigate risk. In the realm of perioperative medicine, we are often asked to assess a patient's risk for uh, surgical interventions, and our thoughts mostly focus on cardiac risk or pulmonary complications or risk of bleeding. But today, I would like to present an article that will shed some light on how important it is to look for and address frailty in patients who are being considered for surgical interventions. This article makes the argument that um, it is it's, uh, important to look for frailty and frailty presents a significant risk of postoperative mortality uh, far greater than non-frail patients. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about what is frailty, how is frailty measured in this particular study, the novel idea of the operative stress scale for surgical classification, the effect of frailty on mortality at 30, 90, and 100 days, and then some recommendations for the next steps. So what is frailty? Frailty is a global syndrome of decreased physiologic reserve, and it is um, driven by a multitude of uh, conditions, uh, including depression, nutrition, uh, medical conditions, but also physical activity, weight loss, muscle strength, uh, speed walk, uh, walking speed, not speed walk. Um, and in this particular study, the authors used um, this method of measuring frailty, and it's called the risk analysis index. And at first glance, it looks complicated, but when you uh, spend a little bit of time looking at it, it's really uh, very short and very easy to administer, and it's based on age, sex, and cancer, medical comorbidities, cognition, residence, and activity of daily living, as well as um, um, mobility, eating, toilet use, personal hygiene, uh, etc. So um, it's called an RAI score, and it's divided up. Uh, as follows, less than 20 is considered to be robust, normal is 21 to 29, frail 30 to 39, and very frail is greater than 40. The operative stress score is the uh, novel concept that was um, uh, derived by uh, the authors of the study, and they used a uh, Delphi consistence model they put together groups of surgeons and anesthesiologists uh, in rooms together and gave them a bunch of different uh, procedures and um, uh, code, um, I don't know what you call it, uh, CPT codes, and asked them to stratify the surgical procedures by into various categories of physiologic stress. Uh, and they had to reach a 60% consensus. So this is what they came up with, five different uh, areas of stress uh, related to the operations themselves, going from very low stress to very high stress. And uh, certainly you can see uh, examples of the different types of stress 
caused by the surgical procedure itself. Uh, very low stress being things like hand arthroplasty. Low stress example would be knee arthroplasty or umbilical hernia or appendectomy. Moderate stress, uh, things like cholecystectomy, arthroplasty, and a laparoscopic colectomy. But um, if the lap laparoscopic colectomy becomes an open colectomy, it switches over into the high stress area. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, prostatectomy is considered to be a high stress, but so is nephrectomy and lung resection. And certainly very high stress um, surgeries uh, have um, uh, are those that either take a, a long time to get through or occur near uh, vital organs. So the study itself was a retrospective study and it was performed in the VA uh, in their surgical quality improvement program, which is a parallel program to the NISQIP, a national surgical quality improvement program. And they looked at non-cardiac procedures they studied almost half a million unique patients and they assigned frailty scores uh, and matched them with operative score, uh, op operative stress. And they measured mortality at 30, 90, and 180 days uh, after surgery. And um, from here, we can see the idea that um, physiologic reserve, it, when the physiolo physiologic reserve is less than the physiologic stress caused by the uh, certain surgical procedures, the risk of poor outcomes increases. And um, here is a, a shot of the um, uh, mortality, uh, 30 days, 90 days, and 180 days, the by RAI scores, uh, and the, I don't know if I can use the pointer, but um, uh, this low uh, RAI score is actually at the bottom of the uh, um, 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 uh, illustration here. And the high RAI score or the very frail patients uh, is the gray and then, you know, certainly blue and orange. And as you can see, um, even at operative uh, stress scores that are considered to be very low, low, medium, uh, and so on, the frail patients have a significantly higher mor morbidity, sorry, mortality um, uh, at 30 days, increased at 90 days, and certainly increased at 180 days. Um, and just for um, um, uh, to show uh, that uh, basically even the lowest stress procedure, very frail patients have a mortality of 10% uh, at 30 days. And this kind of reminds me a little bit, well, I'm going to skip that. So how did Olive measure up? Uh, she has a cholecystectomy that is considered the moderate of operative stress and her RAI score is 30, which she qualifies as frail, and her risk of mortality at 30 days is about 5%, at 90 days is about 11%, and at 180 days is about 17%. What I wanted to say is that when I was um, seeing patients in the preoperative uh, area, uh, and they were frail, and we were talking about uh, risk of surgery, and I was explaining how that works. They would often say that they, you know, they wouldn't mind, as they would say, call it, dying on the table. The thing about it is that very few patients die on the table, but when you look a little bit further into their future at 30 days, 90 days, and 180 days, that makes a big difference. So patient frailty at all levels of surgical stress increases the risk of mortality. And frailty screening should be applied universally because even low and moderate stress procedures <clears throat> may be high risk among patients who are frail. And for us, I believe that using a systematic measurement of frailty, and it doesn't have to be RAI, there are various other 
methods of measuring frailty um, should be performed and uh, is better than uh, just intuition. And frailty should be part of the shared decision-making dis discussion. Uh, and in the outpatient arena, mostly some aspects of frailty could be optimized uh, depending on how urgent the surgery uh, is to be performed. And now I'm going to pass the baton to my colleague, Dr. Ben Pedroja. Hello, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for tuning in here. Again, my name is Ben Pedroja. I'm a hospitalist here at PPMC, and I'm honored to stand before you at this podium. Um, so thinking about all his continued stories, he's now had an unremarkable post-operative course and is being transferred back to the wars, which is, of course, when we start fielding pages about the horrendous pain they may win. And so I want to spend a few moments today to talk about safe and effective opioid prescribing in the hospital. Now, I, of course, am not an expert in pain. I am not a palliative care specialist, but I do manage pain commonly in my practice. And I really want to approach this topic as it exists in the context of the broader opioid crisis. And so I'd like to start there. Now, of course, you guys have seen this slide. This is the overdose deaths due to opioids per 100,000 of the population. And these numbers, of course, are just going straight up and is heartbreaking to see. That top green line is any opioid. The lower blue line is synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which, as you can see, over the last several years have just gone to staggering proportions. Uh, these are 2019 numbers. And in fact, 2020 is just looking horrendous with uh, more than 90,000 deaths. And we are well on track to pop 100,000 here in 2021. Uh, the last thing I'd call out here is that purple line, which is the commonly prescribed opioids, which has actually plateaued and started to come down in recent years. But still, prescription opioids constitute a major contributor of opioid deaths. And in one survey I saw, more than 75% of patients who suffer from opioid addiction reported that prescribed opioids were actually their first drug of addiction. And so I think there is real reason to believe that this is still a root cause as we think about this crisis. And I want to understand better how hospitalists may fit into this broader context. So uh, just taking a moment here to compare ourselves to the rest of the world. So a couple of years ago in 2020, we had a very ambitious cohort study that was published um, where they looked at about 5,000 patients who were admitted in nine countries at 11 institutions with common a surgical indication. So all patients were either undergoing a cholecystectomy, a inguinal hernia repair, or an appendectomy. And they looked at the rates of opioid prescribing at discharge in various countries. And on the left here, we're plotting the number of pills dispensed at discharge on the x-axis over the patient count there on the y. And as you can see in the pink bars, the, the U.S. is just beating out the rest of the world by wide margins. And on average, U.S. patients were prescribed 23 pills at discharge, and that compares to less than one for all non-U.S. patients. And in the box on the right, you can see that 91% of post-op patients in the U.S. were prescribed opiates, compared with 5% of non-U.S. patients. And for example, there were some countries like China where not a single patient was prescribed opiates at discharge. So I call this to our attention really to call out that there are some major differences in the way that we approach pain in this country, both having to do with patient expectations as well as the structural issues with our healthcare system. And if you try to dive in a little bit and try to understand these differences, you know, things that are called out like, really we have a culture in this country where both from the hospital standpoint and patient standpoint that narcotics are really first line for pain, which is not the case around the world. We have direct consumer advertising in this country, which is a pretty unique, uniquely American phenomenon, which I think contributes to this as well. And so I, I do think it's incumbent upon us to think about how our role in this exists and how does that potentially impact patients in our practice. So what is our role? We had a, a large retrospective review that was published a couple of years ago, 2019, in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, where they followed uh, over 12,000 patients who were admitted to a single health system in Pennsylvania. And they looked at the opioid prescribing patterns. Um, and this was a, a nice wide sample, had both community hospitals and academic centers. And what they had was almost 50% of all patients admitted were prescribed a narcotic, both for surgical 
and medical indications. And of those 50%, only 25% of those were treated with a non-opioid narcotic. And if you then followed that same population for 90 days, you saw more than doubling of the rates of continued use, up to 6% from 3% among patients who were not prescribed a narcotic in the hospital. So while these numbers may seem small in the range of the single digit percent, which is a number I've seen in other places to try to estimate the rates of continued opioid use following a discharge, we have millions upon millions of patients admitted to the hospital every year. And so the absolute numbers here are quite large. And so I think that, again, it's really incumbent upon us to think carefully about how we use these medicines and how we're contributing to the opioid crisis. And what's this set in is this concept of opiophobia, which I think affects all of us to some extent or another, as well it should. I first came across this concept, this concept in the context of medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. But I think that it resonates more widely as we think about using these powerful medicines uh, in our patients, because I think all of us are kind of stuck in this bind between the desire to relieve suffering in our patient against the real responsibility we have to first do no harm. And so I think this opioid crisis kind of looks us straight in the face every day we feel these pages for acute complaints of pain. And so what I'd like to try to do today is put out some guideposts for rational and safe use of these medicines in the hospital as we try to minimize our impact on this opioid crisis. And so I'd like to center around this document that was released by the Society of Hospital Medicine in 2018. And this is a consensus statement that puts some guidelines around really all the different decisions we face in this realm. Um, calling out that a lot of this is based on expert opinion. We don't have the type of rigorous clinical data you might like to see, but they do a really good job of kind of shaping their recommendations to the course of a hospital stay from assessing pain to choosing the appropriate narcotic and to safe discharge prescri prescriptions when that time comes. And so I'd like to use the remainder of the talk today to kind of stick with that format and try to guide ourselves through this hospitalization um, using some of the best practices we've learned from the literature recently. So first thing I think is really important, take a pain history, talk to your patients about pain, understand the context. If you think a patient like Olive, she's been admitted to a skilled nursing facility. She had an operation recently. I think undoubtedly there's a story to be told about her pain history, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And I think taking the time to dive into that and really understand the context is going to help you as you think about managing their acute pain in the hospital. Because now we have a more complicated overlay, where we may have some chronic pain complaints now with this acute issues layered on top. And so I really think that we pay dividends by spending the time here. And as you're doing that, it gives an opportunity to really talk about pain and talk about pain control in the hospital. Set specific goals and set expectations right from the beginning. Again, just mentioning that pain control in itself is not a good target. These should be specific functional targets. I want you out of bed and working with physical therapy every day or whatever it may be and using as much or as little narcotics as necessary to achieve those goals. And then expect, you know, set those expectations that, you know, zero pain is not going to be the goal, that we have these other goals that you're working towards and that we're going to be reevaluating and reassessing over time. And of course, discussing the risks of these medicines, not just with dependence and addiction, but constipation respiratory depression, all of the issues with these medicines, I think it's really important for us to spend the time to review those with our patients right from the start. So black pain matters. I like to take a little time to think about this. So what I think we see very clearly today is that we have a pain gap in this country. This has been seen for a long time and I think it's just becoming into better focus in recent times where there's been some work in this area that I'd like to review. But first, I want to call out this piece by Keith Waylu that was published a couple of years ago in the Daily Beast. He's an influential historian over at Princeton, and he did a really good job in contextualizing this problem that we see. And this was in response to a study that was published in 2016 that created a lot of waves. This was a study at UVM where they followed 200 medicine residents and uh, medical students and asked them about their attitudes about race and pain control and many other topics. And they found some pretty unbelievable rates of misconceptions and, and downright false beliefs among respondents. Fully 63% of respondents to this survey felt that black patients had thicker skin than white patients. 22% felt that nerve endings of black persons were less sensitive 
the nerve endings of white persons. And if you then looked at the response to these respondents to a follow-up clinical vignette, they were then less likely to recommend pain control. And so I think we have real biases at play here and ones that we should be very mindful of. And there's been some work in this area. So uh, just a couple months ago, we had a publication from a group at UCSF where they looked at all the patients who were admitted to their institution through, I think, 2012 to 2017. And they were looking at predictors of discharge prescriptions um, based on race and some other clinical factors. And I know you can't see this too well, so I'll just highlight a couple. So um, up here, that first top left point is black patients. And the blue line in the middle is the predicted opioid prescriptions to a white patient. And you can see that they're almost 4% less likely to prescribe to, to receive an opioid at discharge. And when they do, they receive fewer days of an opioid. I would just mention that Asian seems to have the same problem in the other direction, which is, uh, again, difficult to explain. Just calling out a couple other of the outliers, uh, being admitted to the ICU or having an admission for psychosis also predicted less likely to be described, prescribed an opioid. And conditions like cancer or chronic pain over there on the bottom right, we're obviously much more likely to receive an opioid. So I think this just puts some numbers and some contours around what is a very apparent bias in our treatment. So I think it's important for us really to take stock of these biases and to work to undo them and really work with intention as we think about managing acute pain in the hospital. And so with that, I wanna really start here, which is multimodal analgesia, which I think is the name of the game as we think about approaching acute pain. And I like this representation because it specifies the, the pyramid structure to our approach here, emphasizing that comfort measures, non-opioid analgesics should be the mainstay of therapies, that the bulk of our acute symptoms can be managed this way, and they should be as well here in the hospital. Um, I, I would mention that the Society of Family Medicine, they put a big systematic review together and they put some recommendations in place, finding that topical agents were very, quite, very, very much effective for a lot of the musculoskeletal complaints that are seen in the outpatient. And as well, we have almost no data to recommend their use in the hospital, um, both with non-opioid analgesics as well as topical treatments. The vanishing risk of harm here and the, the plausibility of benefit, I think, recommends their wide adoption um, here in the hospital. And I think um, really leaning into these uh, comfort measures and non-opioid um, analgesics in the hospital has got to be our default. And then emphasizing that, obviously, in the hospital, we manage severe acute pain, the type that often can't be managed with these less aggressive measures, but that the oral narcotics ought to be the first step in its distinct minority of patients at the tip of this pyramid who are gonna need the IO or the IV narcotics, and it really should be reserved as such. So when that becomes necessary, I'd like to call out a couple safe habits that I think can help us as we manage pain complaints in the hospital. Firstly, a lot of this is common sense, but use the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration possible. I would, I would advise to get comfortable with a handful of narcotics that you use commonly, and really know them backwards and forwards. Know how they interchange with each other and making sure you're being mindful about the morphine equivalents that are being prescribed and being mindful of the duration of therapy there. Because what we've seen in large retrospective reviews is that the higher the dose, the longer the duration, the more likely you're going to contribute to continued use following the hospital. And so I think some real work at the outset to minimize these things can really pay dividends. As I mentioned, avoiding IVs. I think an approach to a pain complaint, especially in a patient like Olive who's coming out of the, in, of the operating room, a severe pain complaint may need IV narcotics, but the approach here is one of critical stabilization for a crisis, and then you are simultaneously and quickly transitioning to oral therapies as the more durable and consistent pain relief. Not only is it safer, but it's less likely to contribute to misuse down the road, and it really should be our default to quickly stabilize and transition away from IV narcotics. Of course, we're gonna avoid CNS depressants. I have another slide on this coming up here, um, but I think this is well established in the literature that co-prescription, especially medications like benzodiazepines, contribute to overdose deaths and should be avoided really at all costs. And this last bullet here, monitoring daily morphine equivalents. I touched on this already, but I, I really can't emphasize enough how important this is. On my Epic screen, I've actually created a column where I have the morphine equivalents ordered per day. And you'd be surprised how often that changes without your knowledge. And so having awareness of what's ordered 
when it's being administered for your patient, I can I think really helps. And then also reassess. Each day, you gotta be tar targeting those specific goals. Are we getting there? Do we need more? Do we need less pain control to achieve our targets? And I think if we get into the habit of really assessing our pain control each day, uh, we'll do quite well in minimizing opioid use overall. Now, like I said, I think it's well established the medicines like benzodiazepines co-prescribed with opioids it con contribute to opioid deaths. But I think now we can add so-called Z drugs to that list. We had a big post-market survey that was done where they looked at five, th 500,000 patients who were co-prescribed Z drugs as well as opiates. And it compared those one-to-one -one with 500,000 MASH controls who were only exposed to opioids alone. And what's plotted here is the 90-day mortality um, due to opioid over deaths as a, a function of a survival. And you can see the drop quickly in the survivability of patients who have co-prescribed Z drugs and opioids. And the unadjusted hazard ratio looked, saw a near tripling of the event rate of overdose deaths at 90 days. And even when, when adjusted for numerous confounders, the hazard ratio was still above two, so I think there's good reason to think that we are near doubling the risk of overdose when we're co-prescribed, and we should really be avoiding these as well. Tramadont. So there was this great piece by David Jerlich that was published in EM Crit, which is a, a very popular uh, blog uh, posting, where he really goes through tramadol and all the issues that I've seen. Now, most of this is anecdotal, where we've seen seizure thresholds getting lowered. We've seen serotonin syndrome, drug-drug interactions, hypoglycemia, and of course, addiction and death. Um, but I think what's really important to keep in mind about this medicine is that there's a conception out there that it's kind of a weak opioid, um, akin to something like codeine. Um, but I think that's really a miscasting of what this drug really is. Understanding that it has some analgesic effect through mu receptors, but really the bulk or maybe the large majority, at least, of the effect is, is, a, is a norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And the pharmacology behind that is complex and unpredictable in our patients. And so I would have you take a look at this piece by, by David Jerlich. It's very convincing, very entertaining. And I think here again, tramadol is probably a medicine we should be avoiding if we can. Okay, start tapering early. Um, so understanding that narcotic dependence can take only days to set in. I'm talking about on the order of a week for doses on the order of 30 milligrams a day of oxycodone, for example. And so as we're thinking about discharge, the last thing we wanna do is to set someone up for a difficult withdrawal syndrome once they've been released or as those narcotic are being tapered down too quickly. And so talking about this early, setting a plan in place early, I think is really important. And as you're doing that, Put the patient at the center of that conversation. Give them control over how the taper proceeds. You know, you can always give the choice. If you want to do dose reduction, reduce the frequency, do you target certain activities through the day during physical therapy, for example, or whatever it may be. But developing a patient-centered taper strategy early in the hospitalization, I think, is really a good idea. And then this is an instance where coordinating with outpatient providers is essential, especially for longer, complex hospitalizations where that taper is expected to proceed into the outpatient center, I think picking up the phone and dialing the PCP in this instance really is important. And then when discharge come, limit discharge prescriptions. I think our default position has to be that opioids are not necessary for the bulk of the acute pain complaints we see in the hospital. And when severe pain is expected to outlast the hospitalization, limiting those discharge prescriptions to three days, five days at most, my personal, uh, my, my practice here is to prescribe 12 tablets for an acute pain complaint. I'm rarely going to exceed that except in the, in the most unusual of circumstances. And then this last bullet, ask about pills at home. I think thinking again about the overprescription that we're seeing in this country, you'd be surprised what people keep in their medicine cabinets at home. And so asking about what's, what's there and what they've been using and checking that prescription drug monitoring program, I think is really important to get a sense for who's been prescribing, how much, and when, as you're thinking about writing those discharge prescriptions. So lastly here, Narcan saves lives. I think there's little question that that's the case, and I think there's good reason to believe that it's vastly underused. 
I'm actually involved in some quality work in this area, and we're finding rates in the 30% range of patients who are indicated to have Narcan who actually are ordered Narcan. So reviewing the indications here from the CDC, this is any patient who is prescribed 50 morphine equivalents or more per day. And for comparison, that's 30 milligrams of oxycodone per day. They should have Narcan ideally on their person at all times or certainly prescribed in the home for safety. Also, anyone who carries a diagnosis of opioid use disorder or has any history of opioid overdose should have a prescription for Narcan. And uh, the HHS actually published some wider categories. It would include folks who are at increased risk because of underlying respiratory conditions, for example, COPD or obstructive sleep apnea who are co-prescribed. Narcotics should receive um, a prescription for Narcan, as well as benzodiazepine co-prescriptions. And I think in light of the recent data, I would add Z-drugs to that list, where if you're getting that prescription for Ambien, Sonata, and the like, and are being prescribed opioids, that Narcan co-prescription ought to be a reflex there as well. So I, I think we really can save lives with Narcan, and we should be doing our best to do so. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Rankin. Thank you for your attention. Good morning. Um, with that, we're going to continue on with Olive's story and transition to a slightly different topic. Um, so Olive uh, stops his clears and she recovers from her surgery on the medical floor. Uh, she develops uh, her usual hypertension after her sepsis clears uh, and her usual antihypertensive regimen of 10 milligrams of Norvasc is restarted. Uh, ultimately, um, her pain is uh, controlled with just a regimen of Tylenol and a rapid taper of, uh, of opiates per Ben's discussion. Uh, and as she transitions into the latter part of her hospitalization, occupational and physical therapy do recommend that she returns to a skilled facility for uh, further physical rehabilitation prior to returning back to her assisted living. So at that point, she's feeling good. Her appetite is improving. She's uh, focusing on eating and uh, increasing her uh, ambulation. Uh, on post-op day eight, uh, a skilled nursing facility is found and, uh, and she's anticipated to transfer uh, there the next day uh, to continue rehabilitation. Uh, at 6 p.m., however, the evening prior, uh, nursing takes her routine blood pressure and notes that it's elevated to 185 over 100. Concerned, uh, her nurse appropriately goes into uh, perform review of systems on Olive and notes that she has no lightheadedness, no blurry vision, no headache, no chest symptoms, uh, no shortness of breath, otherwise feeling well. But uh, based on the parameters uh, given in the routine admission order sets, uh, they do page the hospitalist to notify them regarding the elevated blood pressure. So this, uh, I think, is an extremely common um, clinical scenario that we manage really every day in the hospital. Um, it's one that uh, has up to now been based on sort of physiological principles. And um, I wanted to address uh, a new article from this year uh, that seems to give us some guidance there and specifically look at both what it learned, uh, what it shows us about current clinical practice, but also um, introduce some of the uh, more global uh, ideas about what it may guide us to suggest what our practice should be. So my goals today, how common is Olive's story? Is this something that we routinely manage in the hospital or is this a fairly unusual presentation? Um, and then what is known about management of hypertension in the inpatient setting? And, and I think crucial to all of this is to understand that these studies were done in non-cardiac admissions. So everything I'm going to talk about today is not necessarily applicable and probably is not applicable to the patient admitted with acute coronary syndrome or um, with an acute stroke or dissecting aortic aneurysm, uh, congestive heart failure, et cetera. So the main question is, do we improve short or long-term outcomes when we treat incidentally, i.e. asymptomatic uh, hypertension identified during a non-cardiac admission? And then the secondary question is, uh, should, when we identify the patient who's in the hospital and is persistently hypertensive during the hospitalization, uh, should the hospital uh, clinician uh, use that as an indication to intensify their outpatient uh, hypertensive regimen uh, at the time of their discharge? And I think that's something that many of us uh, do do uh, occasionally with the idea that we're, quote unquote, helping uh, the outpatient providers uh, get better um, hypertension control. 
So just a general background before I present the article, uh, we know based on robust studies that um, in which have all been uh, done in the outpatient setting that the adverse effects of untreated hypertension really require decades to develop. Um, and that uh, similarly improving blood pressure control through either lifestyle modification or uh, through medications does significantly decrease the incidence of uh, some of these adverse outcomes related to untreated hypertension. And then similarly, although this is based on much less robust data, there's general agreement that when uh, we are evaluating the patient with severe hypertension in the context of ongoing uh, end organ damage, so the patient with chest pain, patient with blurred vision or headache, um, which we, uh, we label hypertensive urgency, that treatment of that uh, hypertension in that context improves outcomes. But there's much less known about the benefits and risks uh, when we treat either mild or severe hypertension in the hospitalized patient who's essentially asymptomatic, uh, who's coming in with a condition that is uh, non-cardiac. And interestingly, there's also very little known uh, in only a few studies that address the issue of what to do with that same patient who presents in clinic with asymptomatic uh, severe hypertension. So this is the study I'd like to talk primarily about, although I'm going to review a study from 2019 just for context if we have time. Uh, this came out in JAMA uh, Internal Medicine uh, in March of this year uh, and was entitled uh, Treatment and Outcomes of Inpatient Hypertension Among Adults with Non-Cardiac Emissions. So just quick, uh, I think it's important to understand in the study design here uh, as we interpret um, uh, the outcomes and uh, how immediately applicable to our clinical practice we might take this. So this is a cohort study uh, which uses propensity score matching, which is, uh, I'll explain that technique in a second. Uh, this was primarily done through electronic health records data and uh, entirely within the Cleveland Clinic system, uh, 10 hospitals there. And uh, they essentially looked at uh, all of the admissions uh, through calendar year 2017 and then uh, looked at uh, both outcomes during the hospitalization as well as uh, one-year follow-up uh, out, um, uh, outcomes. So there was a total of 35,000 uh, patients admitted to those hospitals during that year. And then from within that, they excluded patients admitted with a primary cardiovascular diagnosis. So importantly, I think as we're having this discussion, it's important to remember that this is not the patient admitted with acute coronary syndrome. This is not the patient admitted with uh, decompensated congestive heart failure. Um, all of those syndromes have well-described um, well uh, treatment goals, um, and this is not that patient population. So ultimately, when they excluded the cardiovascular diagnoses, which is about 35% of the admissions, they ended up with uh, a total in of around two, uh, 22,000 patients uh, who were admitted without uh, a cardiovascular, primary cardiovascular diagnosis. And then uh, they use demographic and blood, pre blood pressure characteristics for propensity score matching. I'll talk about that in a second. Their outcomes um, were uh, the association between an inpatient hypertension treatment and a subsequent inpatient acute kidney injury, stroke, or myocardial infarction. So when we gave patients with hypertension during the hospitalization, did we improve inpatient outcomes? Um, and then the post-discharge outcomes we're looking at, uh, did we improve uh, stroke or myocardial infarction within 30 days? And then uh, they looked at follow-up blood pressure control one year post-hospitalization. So if we had either treated during the hospitalization or if we had treated during the hospitalization and increased the uh, outpatient discharge uh, regimen at the time of discharge, did we improve blood pressure control one year later? So just a quick, uh, quick mention on propensity score matching. This is something uh, I'm certainly no expert on. Um, the idea, though, is in these studies that are cohort studies uh, where they, you do not have a randomization process, uh, it's an attempt to decrease um, bias that may have affected outcomes uh, un unintentionally. And so you, you basically develop a propensity score based on the patient characteristics and covariance, uh, and then you uh, retrospectively match patients to put them into um, a treatment group and a control group based on their intervention, i.e., in this case, did they receive uh, antihypertensive treatment during the hospitalization? And um, I think uh, if you can imagine a easy example here, if 
we did not um, control for patients who had pre-existing coronary artery disease, for example. And then our outcome uh, at 30 days was myocardial infarction. Uh, and I was more likely as an inpatient provider, which I think is probably my clinical practice up to now, to treat hypertension in somebody with a clinical history of coronary artery disease. You can imagine that that would uh, increase the incidence of myocardial infarction, but that's not actually related to whether or not I treated them or not. It's related to the underlying risk. So um, that is the major criticism of these kinds of studies, uh, is that you're really unable to account for unrecognized bias or uh, unrecognized uh, co-founding uh, covariants that influence the decision to treat or not to treat, uh, and that the outcomes were not related to the, to the treatment, but rather to un unrecognized biases. Um, they did a pretty good job in this study. Uh, I'm not going to go over that slide, um, but uh, they uh, did a, a robust um, accounting for all of the typical covariants that you might expect would affect uh, outcomes in this situation. So I think there's two things to gather from the study. One is uh, there was a lot of interesting information that talked about current practice um, that uh, I think mirrors my clinical experience uh, and that of uh, my colleagues here at Prop Portland. So first off, this is extremely common. 78% of the non-cardiac admissions had at least one documented um, episode of hypertension. So this is actually the rule and not the exception. Um, if you looked at current clinical practice, and I think this is probably uh, also reflects uh, our practice here, about 33% of patients received a new treatment in response to hypertension. And of those, 75% uh, received a new oral medication, or 25% had at least one IV medication uh, treatment with or without an additional oral. So this is the ubiquitous uh, dose of hydralazine, uh, PR and systolic pressure over 180. When you look at um, what, the, what differentiated in terms of uh, premorbid conditions uh, and, and hospitalization conditions, the treated patients uh, had slightly increased lengths of stay, more chronic kidney disease, though not dramatically so. Uh, interestingly, they were more likely to have a pre-existing diagnosis, but if you note, both of those were 50%. So about 50% of the patients who were receiving uh, acute antihypertensive treatment during the hospitalization did not have an outpatient diagnosis of essential hypertension, which I think is worth thinking about too. Uh, a higher blood pressure did seem to make people pull the trigger on uh, treating more. Uh, and then if you had persistent hypertension throughout the day, so a higher percentage of your uh, total uh, blood pressures were hypertensive, you were more likely to treat as well. And I think all of those things are things that I may not have been able to verbalize, but subconsciously factored into my decisions. Uh, about whether I may treat an episode of isolated asymptomatic hypertension. So, uh, you know, just to put some numbers to that, 84% of patients with a systolic over uh, 210 would be treated uh, versus 14% of patients with what we would consider mild uh, hypertension were treated. So I think that accurately reflects kind of how people practice. Uh, interestingly, and I think perhaps uh, leading to some uh, possible uh, changes in our clinical practice. And amongst the patients who had a blood pressure of 160, greater than 160, uh, if you simply waited and checked the next blood pressure, regardless of your treatment, uh, they were uh, over 50% more likely to be uh, 20%, uh, 20 milligrams of mercury uh, lower on the next treatment. So whether or not the treatment was provided, you had a significantly improved hypertension the next time you checked. Um, and then just rounding out the kind of uh, out, uh, uh, pre-outcome data, just the, find, the findings. Um, so ultimately, about 9.2% of the patients had a new class of oral medication prescribed at discharge. Uh, and that represented only about a quarter of the patients who had had medication, additional medications given during the hospital. So the majority of the time, we're giving a couple of doses of an antihypertensive during the hospitalization to treat hypertension, but we're not changing their outpatient regimen. Uh, if you looked at who uh, were intensified at discharge, uh, uh, they were slightly more likely to be black. Uh, interestingly, they were less likely to have coronary artery disease, which is not what I would have thought. Uh, and they were less likely to have a pre-admission diagnosis of hypertension. But again, if you notice, about 50, 50% of patients did not have a pre-existing diagnosis of hypertension. So it was essentially made during a hospitalization. Uh, and initiated on blood pressure management on the, on the basis of the hospitalization blood pressures. 
uh, and as we mentioned, higher blood pressures uh, did seem to push people more towards uh, intensifying the outpatient regimen. So this is the uh, data from the article I introduced from, uh, from March of this year. And this is their inpatient data. So they looked at uh, treatment, whether or not a patient's inpatient hypertension was treated during the hospitalization, uh, and what were the inpatient effects. And if you see, uh, there were no statistically significant uh, changes in inpatient stroke. Uh, and especially at the highest margin of blood pressure, uh, it actually favored no treatment. Uh, and that probably is not my clinical practice. I typically, when I do this, I'm typically focusing on those patients who have a blood pressure of two, 200. And this would suggest that um, even if that confidence interval did not go over one, uh, that that's not uh, evidence-based. Uh, and then with regard to myocardial injury and acute kidney injury, uh, all of them uh, seem to favor no treatment. And if you notice the IV versus oral uh, uh, in all situations, uh, plays out in favor of oral treatment rather than IV. And in the bottom, there's a composite, uh, which is all um, firmly in the no, no treatment realm. So uh, this is their one-year outcomes. It's kind of a busy slide, but I'll direct you towards the bottom here. Uh, the cut to the chase is that there was no change in one-year outcomes uh, in terms of uh, blood pressure. So the idea that we're going to be helping the outpatient providers in their long-term attempt to control the blood pressure is not accurate. Uh, there were slight differences uh, in stroke and myocardial infarction, but as you see on the p-values there, those were non-significant. So why, why might there be no benefit? You know, we know that the uh, impacts of hypertension generally are long-term impacts. So hospitalization is generally a brief period. Uh, it's filled with other, many other causes why a patient may be hypertensive, uh, anxiety, pain, withdrawal. Uh, and it's just a very abnormal environment and doesn't reflect the patient's baseline physiologic state when they're not in the hospital. Uh, you're up all day. Um, there, there's different people coming in, different stressors throughout the day. And so while short-term hypertension and even severe hypertension uh, may be uh, adaptive in many situations, it's probably generally not harmful uh, in non-cardiac admissions when the patient is asymptomatic. So again, going back to these are non-cardiac admissions and the patient is essentially asymptomatic, no evidence of end-organ damage. Uh, and so this work actually builds on earlier data. I see we're getting close, so I'll try to move through this faster. Um, there was actually a study back in uh, 2019 which looked at similar things um, and essentially looked at uh, when you intensified the outpatient regimen at the time of discharge, did you change clinical outcomes? This was produced in, uh, um, published in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine in 2019. I think it got a fair amount of press. Uh, so again, a retrospective cohort study, uh, again, done with propensity matching. Uh, this was 2013. Uh, the major difference here is that this was a VA population, so predominantly male. Um, and they essentially looked at outcomes when the patient's uh, outpatient regimen had been intensified at discharge. Uh, were there uh, harm outcomes? Uh, so was it more likely that the patient got readmitted at 30 days? Were there adverse events at 30 days? And were there increased cardiovascular events at 30 days? And jumping to the chase, essentially they did see actually a signal of harm. Uh, and going back to the first study, you might imagine that uh, we are treating an abnormal physiologic state. And uh, these readmissions may be caused from acute kidney injury, uh, may be causing, uh, caused by hypotension. Um, and then uh, also uh, there was really no difference in cardiovascular events uh, at one year. So again, suggesting that uh, it's probably not the place to uh, be adjusting antihypertensives during a hospitalization for all the reasons I mentioned. Uh, this is their graphical representation and you see pretty quickly at 30 days there, the uh, group who were intensified uh, had worsened outcomes. Um, interestingly, the one other bit that they got from this is that if you did your due diligence as a hospital physician and you looked out at the outpatient record and you saw that they were consistently poorly controlled in the outpatient, uh, you probably mitigated some of those harms. Uh, and so the uh, hazard ratios went down and the number needed to um, and, and crossed one and so were no longer uh, significantly uh, uh, clinically significant. So in summary, 
Uh, a, hypertension is extremely common during hospitalization. There's currently wide variability in clinical practice, which I think reflects that we really didn't have much data in this up till now. Uh, and that current available evidence suggests that if you don't have evidence of end organ damage in the non-cardiac hospitalization, that the adverse effects of uh, transient inpatient hypertension probably don't warrant acute treatment. Uh, and that in general, also escalating a patient's outpatient regimen on the basis of hypertension identified during the hospital stay is not helpful to their long-term blood pressure management, and it may actually be associated with short-term harms, with the caveat that if you look into the outpatient record and you see that they have been very poorly controlled, um, that that may be a situation where it's uh, more reasonable to consider. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you to all of our speakers. Our invisible audience here at the Providence Portland Cancer Center Auditorium is uh, roaring so loudly, it's quite deafening in here. Um, and I can only imagine our home audience is uh, uh, clapping in uh, even by themselves at home. I, we have time for a few questions. I have a couple here that have come up over the chat. And uh, uh, starting with you, Dr. Rinkin, um, I think we all get uncomfortable when we see a blood pressure over 180, but I was kind of, we were kind of surprised to see on that slide that um, the confidence interval for adverse outcomes, even with a blood pressure in the uh, up to 200, uh, seemed to cross one. Uh, so except for the M, uh, yeah, no, so even with the MI. So, I just wanted to get your take on that. Is it is, is it basically that we essentially we all feel uncomfortable with a very high blood pressure, so those always get treated, or is even really high blood pressure like 180, 200, 210? Is it really it's mainly uh, harmful in the long run, but not so much in the acute setting? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that probably warrants continued data, but. Uh, I think uh, if you place this into a physiologic concept, the real issue we're dealing with now is in the patient with not, without an unstable plaque and without decompensated congestive heart failure, uh, A, is that systolic pressure, uh, regardless of whether it's essential hypertension or an acute response to pain, um, is that acutely harmful? Uh, and I think that's the the major risk here. Uh, and so I think looking at inpatient myocardial infarction was smart here. Although remember this was uh, retrospective data, so somebody had to have checked a troponin in order to identify that. But I think that this would suggest that while it makes us uncomfortable, uh, it probably does not uh, create a significant acute risk of all the things that we worry about with hypertension. Uh, in the asymptomatic patient. Again, all this is with the caveat. So I think our practice should change to doing a thorough assessment of whether we think there's end organ damage going on. And uh, if there's not, perhaps rechecking the blood pressure in four hours, as I mentioned, uh, and seeing that in that 50% of the time, it's 20 points lower uh, with simply rechecking. Thank you. Uh, a couple of questions on the opioid use. So one was, uh, Dr. Pedroja, are you aware of any data on post-operative cooling as a method of, uh, or an outcome on reducing opioid use? Have you, is that something you've heard of or come across? Gosh, that's an interesting one. I have not come across that. Um, okay. I, I have to say, I'm just not aware of any particular evidence there. Not to say there isn't such. Uh, a second question was, so in the outpatient setting, in order to promote safe opioid use, there's a recommendation to limit morphine, daily morphine equivalents to 90 or less. There's uh, your, your chance of an accidental overdose or way less at those numbers. Is there a similar target for inpatients of uh, uh, a number to, that hospitals should think of when they're uh, treating people in the hospital in terms of daily morphine equivalents? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I didn't see data out there looking at particular morphine equivalents ordered in the hospital that was predictive of inpatient risk. Um, but I think extrapolating from more wide data, the CDC recommends a target of 50 milliequivalents or less per day. And if you look at, again, retrospective data, the overdose rates, they jump up above that number as they do at 90 a day as well. And so, well, I think we have less clear guidance from the literature on how to dose opioids in the hospital. I think adopting those same targets makes sense to me. Around 50 or more should give us caution, and certainly 90 or more 
here in the hospital. Thank you. And we had one here for Dr. Taylor as well. Um, the one thing that seemed sort of surprising on one of your graphs was uh, the, the graphs that were showing the post-operative mortality and the numbers at 30, 60, and 180 days post-operative. And it seemed like those numbers stayed high for the frail patient. The question was if those, uh, the, those mortality numbers months after surgery, six months after surgery, are those still attributed to the surgery itself? Or would those be other factors that it just, once you're following a frail patient, they're more likely to encounter something bad as they go on? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I like that question. Um, they were not attributed to the surgery itself. They did not actually separate that out. And uh, it was all cause mortality. Um, the surgery may have been, you know, a coincidental extra stressor, but it was not tied in to the actual surgical procedure. All right, well, we're at time, so I want to thank you guys again, and thanks to our audience for tuning in, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.